All right, this morning we're reading from Genesis 11, Genesis 11, 6 through 9. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the languages of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thanks again for another morning we have uh, to worship you. Thank you for your word. I pray that it would encourage us, it would illuminate us. I pray that you would give us the will uh, to follow it and the wisdom to understand it. I pray it would sustain us for another week until we meet again next week. Amen. So um, what we've been working at is to understand world history uh, at the point of God's intervention into calling Abram or Abraham as we see him in the very next chapter. And next week we will begin with that call where God calls Abraham uh, from his family. I'll note to you uh, right now, and and then I want to deal with Genesis 11, but I I just want you to see the tie-in between Genesis 11 and uh, uh, Genesis, well, the portion of Genesis 12 where Abram is called. You'll notice here in just a few moments that uh, the, the men of the earth, that is mankind, is seeking for a refuge, and they're seeking for safety. They're seeking for identity, and they're doing that by staying together and creating a name for themselves and building a secure foundation by their own means in their own city and inhabitant. Um, The tie-in is this this project of Babel uh, on its grand scale to the single man Abraham who is pleased to walk by faith and to lead the place of security and safety, to leave his family behind. And he is content to walk by faith in a land that is not his own. That's the tie-in you're going to see. This is the contrast that Moses is writing between Babel, this massive project of mankind seeking security and safety in the earth, and Abraham, who's seeking a, a, a better country. This is Genesis 11 and 12 together. I mentioned to you last week, though, that the greatest affront and the greatest offense to the face of God and against his majesty in the event of the tower of chapter 11 was, as one writer puts it, that those who were supposed to lead in true worship became the leaders in apostasy. That is the greatest affront to God's majesty, that those who were to lead in purity in the ways of worship are those same individuals and their posterity who began leaders in apostasy at Babel. The godly line, and I note for you as you have your text open, I hope, just for the next few moments as we consider the text together, but you notice at the uh, end of chapter 9, there's the blessing, and we noted this last week in close, there's a blessing upon Shem, 
Uh, and you see it in verse 26 of chapter 9. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. And then you see his descendants in verse 21 of chapter 10. And it's the godly and priestly line of Shem and his descendants who are to continue the work of the ministry. And yet it's Jochten, the brother of Peleg. And you see that in verse uh, 25 of chapter 10, who apostatized. Um, they initially, he and his sons with him, initially settled in the hill country in the east. And notice that, if you will, with me in verse 30. Uh, through uh, Jochten and his descendants, verse 26, down by the time you get to the end of verse 30, uh, they're, they're settling uh, in the hill country of the east. But then notice by the time you get to chapter 11, verse 2, well, I'll begin in verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. Again, these are the Joktonites, those who were to lead in the things proper and the things worshipful, who have apostatized. Now, by the time we get to chapter 11 and we see that these folks who were in the east migrated further from the east and landed in Shinar, Babel at this point in chapter 11 is roughly 200 years after the flood had subsided. 200 years later, Babel is considered the center of the world. And the attempt at building a tower now shows where we've come 200 years after Noah. It shows the collective pride and the arrogance of mankind. And they collectively decide, simply 200 years removed from Noah, together we refuse to have God rule over us. Instead, we will make our own name great. We mentioned this in our time uh, working through the book of Esther as well. But it's a theme that is passed down from the very, very beginning in the garden, and it continues and will continue till our Lord returns down throughout the age. That is, as Psalm 2 captures it brilliantly, this conflict between mankind's hubris, our nature, our pride, our arrogance and the sovereignty of God. You call, and you're very familiar with it, but I wish to just put it before you again in the context of Babel, the great events of Genesis 11. Why do the nations rage, says the psalmist. And the peoples, and, and that's what we have here, right? We have the dispersing of the nations in chapter 10. But we have Babel actually occurring and then the table of nations. God dispersed the people. So what is occurring among the nations? They're raging against God. They're choosing to be independent rather than covenantal people. But so the psalmist asked the age-old question, but why do the nations rage? And the peoples of the earth, why do the peoples plot in vain? I trust you can take Psalm 2 from uh, the events at Babel and you can apply them even now in our moment, in our time. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth, says the psalmist, they set themselves together 
and the rulers, they take counsel together against the Lord's anointed. This is what they're doing at Babel. And so then the psalmist fills out, saying together, let us, that is the nations, let us, the peoples, let us burst their bonds apart. And let us cast their cords away from us. Because the nations, that is the peoples, will not have him rule over them. This is the event at Babel. This is the work of the Joktanites. This is those who gather together to make their own name great and to cast off the name of God. And you see, this gets at a simple, and it's very hands-on, it's very easy to grasp, but it's something worth reflecting upon again and again and again and again and again and again. It kind of gets back to that song, uh, I need thee uh, every hour. Because what's at stake here in Babel 11, or excuse me, in Genesis 11 in Babel, gets at the simple and the very binary decision at the heart of our lives every day. In fact, it is often described in terms that you're probably familiar with one way or another, two ways to live. There are but two ways. I think it was Jim Elliott, uh, perhaps, I, I don't know if it's originated with Jim Elliott or not, but he spoke of there are two choices on the shelf, uh, pleasing God or pleasing self, J just the simplicity of a binary choice in one's own life. Further, it's described, you think about the folks at Babel uh, raging and, and, and deciding that they're going to plot in vain against God. They're going to cast off his bonds. They're going to burst his cords. Again, the same thing. There are only but two ways to live, two choices to go by, two paths to walk. Perhaps you've heard it said there are two kingdoms to be decided upon. There are but two cities to choose between. This is what is on display in Babel. Maybe the uh, most that you are familiar with is the great treatment in antiquity by St. Augustine who called it, there is the city of God and there is the city of man. This is what is at stake in the project at Babel. This is the burden that we face in our own day, moment, and time. This is our own heart's struggle each and every day in our perseverance. But there are but two ways to live. Just a few moments ago in our liturgy, actually, as you followed along in your uh, bulletin, there was the text that was read for you uh, regarding uh, Moses' comments to Joshua and the people of God, that is Abraham's descendants, of which we're studying in redemptive history right now through the stories of Genesis and on as we go, the words to the people of God at that time that God will be with them, that they are to live with a spirit of courage and of peace, that they are to pursue with obedience all that God commands. If you go forward to the very end where Joshua is now passing off the scene, it's, it, it's, it's brilliant how 
he says it in uh, Joshua 24. He speaks of it. He says, I I I'm going the way of all the people of the earth. Everyone at some point dies. And as Joshua looks out over the generation that has now been through quite a bit of military conflict, and then they're going to consider, how do we live in this land? And you're, you're keeping in mind the people of the Project of Babel. And you're thinking, there are truly, indeed, even in my own life, there are but two ways to live. And as Joshua looks out over the uh, children of Israel, who have indeed logged a lot of miles and seen a lot of battles and a lot of conflict, and they're reminded that they must pursue by grace, they must pursue the commandments of the Lord and live as his people, for they are the city of God, not the city of man. Joshua, you recall, in such penetrating fashion, says to Israel as he looks out over them, as he is fading off the scene, he says to the people of God, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. And you remember the great conclusion to that of, uh, of, the, of the motivation of one's service, uh, of the object as, as, as fear of the Lord takes shape in one's life, in a life of faithfulness, as he fades and thinks, how will you then live? In this land that the Lord your God has given to you, fear him in it, serve him in it, in sincerity and in faithfulness. Choose this day, he says to them, whom it is that you will serve. And then that great word of resolve that he sets as a motivating example and a word of encouragement, but indeed a word of defiance. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As Augustine then reminds us of what Joshua is looking out over and saying, there are two but two ways to go. There are but two cities to choose between. There are two paths to go by. There are two kingdoms to be decided upon. Augustine reminds us, yes, indeed, for the citizen of the other kingdom, the two cities have various commonalities. And I put this to you as a citizen who lives uh, in both realms. A citizen of the kingdom of God and yet living well within the city of man. As you pass your time, as you live your life by faith, as you build up your family, as you seek to lead in the job place, as you lead in your web of relationships and influence that God gives to you, Again, Augustine reminds us, these two cities have various commonalities. They enjoy natural goods in common with one another. But they have different loves. Different lords. And different ends. So it is as we watch Babel's rage against God in the attempt to burst off his bonds and to establish our own independency, establishing the city of man. 
Notice the feeble nature, however, of such a construct. And I think even as we begin, it's a word of warning to us as we build our lives, that we build them well, that we build them well within the structure of God. Because here on display at the attempts to build our own kingdom and to serve our own selfish ends, notice the feeble nature of such a project. It's a word of warning. It's a tale of caution. Look at verse 5 as we continue down through verse, uh, or chapter 11. Look at verse 5. Well, I'll begin in verse 4. So they said together, come, let us build ourselves a city. And then you notice, well within that city, he said, they say, and a tower. So you have a city project that is a proper city. Let's build, let's build a tower. And then notice very carefully how Moses writes, with its top in the heavens. There it is. Let us make a name for ourselves. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Notice very carefully the built-in irony and the feeble nature of our own pursuits. If you notice in verse 4, the hubris or the pride of the city of man is to build its tower. Yeah, let's build a proper city, a place where we can be proud. But let's build a monument. Let's build a tower that speaks of our greatness. We don't need to serve the greatness of another. We can establish our own. And it's marked by this design feature. Let's have its top in the heavens. Moses is careful to note for us such a feeble nature of such an empty and vain project that threatens God absolutely none. How so, verse 5, notice, and the Lord, do you notice what comes next in the text? Here's man's boasting about how high this tower is going to reach. Moses notes for us very well that the Lord actually had to descend to even see it both its city and its tower. Why? What is its origin? The feeble children of man. You see, so it is with the sins of short-sightedness and pride and arrogance. The builders think that their tower, so also do we in our pursuits, feel that they will reach the heavens. Our reputations will be established our power will be known by all. And yet, it is so low that the Lord must descend from the heavens to even view it. Again, there's a word of analysis here. An application that we should consider deeply well within our conscience as we receive the word, seek to repent, and endeavor after lives of new obedience. I won't necessarily just ask, what are the towers in your life? But nonetheless, I do think it is important and an appropriate application of question that is probing and penetrating from the text. What is it, beloved? What is it, person, that you are building toward in life? 
What is it that when you get up tomorrow morning that you're going to pursue? What is its end? Does it cause you to say no to some things and yes to others? Sure, everything does. What are those things you say no to and those things that you say yes to? What are they? What are the what are the hierarchies of goods that you pursue? How are they scaled? How are they shaped and how are they informed? What are you tomorrow? What is it that you will be building toward in your life? If you think, well, on the grand project of my life, how could I explain it? Well, Consider explaining it to yourself by the way that you expend your energies, your worries, and your anxieties. What do you fear losing most? How do you spend your time? All of us, whenever we talk, we just, I think colloquially, we just share together. So how's life? Oh, it's just been real busy. Everyone is busy. It's just something we say to people. We say it, you say it, I'm busy, you're busy, we're all busy. But again, we all commit, there's just so much time in a day. Or there's only so much time in a week. Right, 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 there is. So if we said, I'm just so busy, and somebody said to you immediately, what are you spending all that time on? Where are you putting your talents that God has given to you? I put this in the context of the Babel event. What will you do with your time? We're going to build a city, a proper city. And what are you going to do? We're going to build a tower in it. How are you going to spend your time building a tower? What are you going to do with your talents? We're going to lay a good foundation. What is the goal? What is the end that it will reach the heavens? Why? So that we will make our name great. Again, and always in a probing analysis right now, uh, as we all look with great embarrassment over the course of our year, we have to file taxes. And at some point, maybe you're faced to look at your checkbook, maybe even dare to balance it, or consider on your computer screen how you spent your money week by week, month by month, where you have and have not spent it. These are the metrics that you can draw from to say, what indeed is it that I am building toward in my life? Print that and look at it, and therein lies your answer. Augustine is quick to remind us, I put before you again, that these cities, beloved, the city of man and the city of God have different loves. Be careful in your relationships and in your ethics. Stand as a person of principle and courage. Because the two cities, they do have different loves. They have different lords. And they have different ends. In the context of family uh, and uh, uh, thinking of goals for family and the building of a house, nonetheless, just in the idea of Babel and a building project and us building well within our lives, I remind you of what we've sung numerous times here at Redeemer regarding the themes of building and embracing 
And as we have read, and undoubtedly you have heard sermons on, or you have read, and you rejoice over, Psalm 127 reminds us this same Babelic concept. What is going on in Babel? What is going on in me? Who are we as the city of God? Psalm 127.1 warns us, unless, unless the Lord builds the house, What are you building? How are you building in life? What are your goals, time, talents, finances, energies? Remember, unless the Lord builds the house, same with Babel, same with the American project. Those who build it labor in vain. And you say, no, no, I'm I'm doing so well. And then you look over the metrics and you say, but what are the categories that you're thriving in? And what are the categories you're dying in? Because there's a question right over vanity. What is breathless about it? Well, it depends on how you look at it. it. Are the areas that you're crushing in Are those the areas of the city of God? Or are they simple, carnal, one-dimensional categories given to you and inherited by you from the city of man? Because Psalm, again, warns us whether we're raising little ones, and I think of this with my little ones, and uh, I've got a little one that's like this, but, but, but I think of them as this, and, and, and I think and pray, as I trust you do as well, that unless the Lord does build this little house right here, uh, my labors are in vain. The, the Lord uh, addressed this same concept. I'll simply read it for you as you consider it in your life, as we lay hold of it. How will we build? Uh, and to remember that as, as the citizens of the city of God, the people of Christ, the sheep of his pasture, we must be about building and not buying. Our Lord speaks of this, and I'll read it for you in Matthew 7, beginning in verse 24. Again, if you wish to jot that down, but I will simply read it for you as you hear it read aloud. Just think of the Babel project. Think of your own life and the metrics that you're weighing out and the categories you're considering. And what am I doing well at? What am I pursuing diligently? And what am I failing at? And what should I repent from and endeavor after new obedience in? Uh, Our Lord speaks this. Everyone then who hears these words of mine, and then he adds this, okay? So in this little section here of the parable that I will begin to read, and you will say, ah, I already, I knew all that. Yes, You do. Let me remind you, there are two people here. There are but two paths to go by, two cities to be determined between, two kingdoms to consider. He says, there's a person here who hears and does, and there's a person here who hears and doesn't do. That's the two choices within this text. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man built his house on the rock. Again, you're considering this theme that is stretched out since 200 years after Noah. He would be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. 
and the rain, the rain fell. And you can make sense of that as you consider your life as a pilgrim in this age. What is it that you're building toward? And the rain fell and the floods came. Inevitable, it's not if, it's when. This will befall all of us in varied providences. But no one lives in this age without the rain coming and the flood following it. And the winds then, they pick up. So when it, when, as we notice in the book of Esther, things often by proverb get worse before they get better. The, the providences of hardship is long. So then the wind blew right behind it and beat on that house. And our Lord says, but it did not fall. Why not? The water, the wind, the rain, the river. No, 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 it didn't fall. And it was because it had been founded on the rock. Now, there are but two paths. Verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them. He will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Again, getting back when you think sand, how do I make sense of this? Consider your metrics. What do you make time for? What do you deny? What do you cultivate? What do you get rid of? He would be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, same situation, everyone endures. The floods come, the winds will inevitably blow, and they will beat against that house. Both houses experience difficulty in this age. And yet the man who does not heed the words of Christ, the house, it fell. And great was the fall of it. You see, whether we're talking about Babel, we're talking about our little ones and our own houses and keeping them in good order, we're thinking about other projects well within our goals and with the talents and time and energies that God has given to us. The house, in that sense, that is built upon the rock, flourishes. It flourishes. This is the way of human flourishing. To live contentedly and to build upon the rock. Because to build one's house upon the rock is to build one's house well within the boundaries that God has set. Again, spending our time, talents, finances, energies, all of it. Well within the boundaries of God. Back in the text then of Genesis as we consider the Babelic project, that is the building of the Tower of Babel here in the Genesis text, the response from heaven is swift. The, the Lord condescendingly, as Moses perfectly pictures, he lowly comes down, he has to drop way down to even gaze and to see this little magnificent city and this tiny little tower that these feeble children of men had built. And the Lord... He speaks of the technology and the advance and the sense of rebellion, and he says they have become one people. They have one language. This is only the beginning of what they will do. Again, the rebellion and the hubris will only maximize and continue. 
Nothing that they purpose to do, whatever those purposes will be, will be impossible for them. They'll work it out. They'll figure a way forward for themselves in great rebellion. Verse 7, then, is the response from heaven to such a project. Come. Let us go down. Again, let us lower ourselves down to these feeble and frail creatures and let us confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there. And then you notice how far-reaching the dispersal is. It's over the face of the entire earth. They left off building the city, I, I'm sure. Verse 9, therefore, its name was called confusion, Babel. Because there the Lord confused their language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them. Again, a repeat of verse 8, over the face of all the earth. Once again, to note for us, the careful reader of the text as we seek to apply it, Moses highlights the fragility of the creatureliness that we all share in common. We are but dust, as the psalmist says. We are but children of fellow men. We are weak and fragile creatures. And yet, sin within us prompts us well to attempt to frustrate from our fragility and our weakness, to frustrate and resist the purposes of our creator. That is what we do. That is who we are. That is what we continue to do right now as a nation. That is what we continue to try to do and attempt to do as a world. To take our creatureliness, pretend it is more like the creator and seek to frustrate and resist his design and his purposes. By sin, we seek rebellion. And you notice that, again, the highlight of the fragility of mankind is expressed in the fact that the very thing they sought to resist, you recall what it was at the very beginning of the, of the founding of the city of Babel, what was the one thing they didn't want to occur to be dispersed. They felt that like life together, staying together and properly founding a good solid city to live in, to really make our glory great on the earth was ultimate sense of security. But God displays his sovereignty and his power over the creature that the very thing that they sought to resist is the very thing which he brings about. Moses repeats as that I mentioned to you in verse 8 and then again in verse 9 shortly thereafter they were dispersed from there. God diversifies the language uh, and, and immediately you can imagine the tower project is simply over. It is ended. If you've ever worked with someone on a project and maybe you're building something or putting some sort of thing together, uh, it doesn't take much and you realize just how critical uh, sharing of language and commonality means to the overall success of the project. It's really hard to communicate in the same language, rather, let alone in multiple languages at a time. Uh, confusion abounds and it's uh, within moments the tower project is ended. However, Babel as a city continues, and it grows into the great city of the ancient world known as Babylon. 
As we work towards our time of conclusion, let me just show you the establishment of Babylon uh, by Nimrod. And I, I gently gestured in this direction last week. Let me just clarify for you in ver uh, chapter 10, verse 8. Um, here is the recording of Nimrod, the great-grandson of Noah. Now, when I was growing up in the 80s uh, uh, and, and then into the 90s, uh, I, I, did, I was not familiar with the genealogy, believe it or not, when I was 9 or 10 uh, of Genesis 10. And uh, Nimrod was actually a slur, I, I, I thought. Uh, that person's a real uh, Nimrod. Um, interesting. Uh, because Nimrod is actually quite a prestigious figure in early history. He is the first among men to be considered great and mighty among them. You have that recorded for you in verse 8. Cush father Nimrod, again the great grandson of Noah, were not far from the cleansing of the earth and yet sin abounds. It is bound to us and we to it. We need a savior. Nimrod was the first on earth to be a mighty man. And then the language here portrays Nimrod as a, as a, as a, as a, a person who dominates and conquers prey. And history will reveal that through his two kingdoms that he establishes. Verse 9, he's a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Again, a vicious uh, hunter and taker down, uh, a person who takes down prey. Verse 10, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. And then verse 11, and uh, from that land, he went into Assyria, and then he built Nineveh. You see, Babel continues its godless pursuits long after the towers have been abandoned. And they live under the tyranny and oppression of the brutality of Nimrod. Nimrod then, and we'll see because this is where Abram is going to be called from. Nimrod, in his power and his might and the fear uh, that he injects into others and the power of his tyranny, is he establishes a kingdom over all of Mesopotamia. It includes Babylonia to the south and Assyria to the north. In other words, after the project and city are kind of brought to somewhat of a ruin and the tower project altogether is ended, Nimrod dominates. He establishes, therefore, a, a massive empire. And yet again, it's established upon force and violence. In fact, St. Jerome, echoed by Calvin, centuries later says this, quote, it became a proverb concerning the powerful and the violent hereafter that they were like Nimrod. What do we learn principally from this text as we have considered it this morning just for a very few brief moments? What do we consider as we could take away as the saints, as the people of God this Lord's Day, as we have considered the Babel Project? What do we consider ourselves and our alliances, our pursuits and our goals? When we look at the city of man and we see not much has changed. If we look at global empires, they are largely held by force and violence. What we learn in this text throughout the ages is that man has not really changed. Sin is bound to us and we to it. 
and every man everywhere needs the gospel of Christ. For those of us as the saints, the people of God, seeking as pilgrims to live faithfully in this age that passes away, I once again remind you in contrast to Babel this morning. Take the great Babelic project, shrink it, down to your own little life. Consider the values and scale it properly. Consider both cities and ask yourself by those metrics in which city do I thrive? The two cities, says Augustine, have various commonalities. They enjoy natural goods in common, but they have different loves. They have different lords. And they have different ends. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for Lord's Day, where we can gather once again and sit under the weight of your word, as it is given for our good and for your glory, that, that then the good that we pursue by faith and the strengthening of your Holy Spirit would be for your glory, and we would experience that returning good in our lives, your peace, your joy, your prosperity, that, that, that what matters truly as we weigh out what's meaningful in our lives would be growing, nurturing, maturing, aiding others, being aided by others, being your people together as members of the city of God, though indeed we live in the city of man. Help us where we have erred. We have set too much of a priority on the categories of the city of man. We have, we have had too much anxiety considering our place in it. Oh God, grant repentance and renewal that we had endeavor after new obedience and experience your peace that comes as we are reminded of our true inheritance. Not the feeble and the fragile, but the unshakable. Help us with that. Help me to help those here. Help them to help me that we together, the people, the sheep of your pasture, would be so strengthened as we think of it together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.